today's workplace podcast disclaimer, J.T. Wilson. This podcast is intended to provide general information about various recent developments in employment law and human resources best practices. Nothing in this presentation or in the comments of Ms. Johnson, Ms. Shannon, or any guest should be considered as the rendering of legal or other professional advice, and it is not directed at any specific cases or circumstances. Listeners are responsible for obtaining the necessary advice about their specific situations from their own counsel. These materials are intended for educational and informational purposes only. The presentation and these materials represent the opinions of the participants and not those of their law firms or companies. No part of these materials may be printed, photocopied, or otherwise reproduced, recorded, or stored, or transmitted in any form and by any means, electronic, mechanical, or otherwise, without the prior written permission of today's workplace podcast. Welcome to today's workplace, a podcast created to keep employers current on the latest employment law trends while providing proactive solutions to the everyday issues arising in today's rapidly changing workplace. Is your business prepared for today's workplace? Let's find out with your hosts, Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. During our last episode, we had a great discussion with Donna Hughes, Vice President of Human Resources with Emblem Health and Ashley Ridgeway Washington, Interim Vice President Human Resources for Chris's Health about how they're helping their organizations address diversity, equity and inclusion post the George Floyd murder and the reckoning around race that this country and corporate America is experiencing. We explored the sound and authentic approaches that companies took to address the concerns in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's murder. So today we're, we continue our discussion about corporate America's response to the social justice movement, especially as it relates to a re-examination of its approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Today, we are excited to keep the conversation on this topic going with two attorneys who are advising companies on the creation and implementation of effective diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. Welcome today to Tammy Bennett and JT Wilson, who are both partners at the Dinsmore firm in Chicago and Cincinnati. Yes, thank you, Belinda. And let me tell our audience a little more about um, our guest today. Tammy is an experienced employment attorney who focuses her practice on preventive strategies, Title VII compliance, and equity, diversity, and inclusion training and consulting. She is also the Chief Equity and Inclusion Officer of the firm. In this key role, she serves as a trusted advisor to leadership in the design, implementation, and management of the firm's equity, diversity, and inclusion programs and initiatives. She frequently conducts training, workshops, lectures, and keynote addresses on diversity innovations, inclusion and belonging, gender equity, implicit bias, inclusive artificial intelligence, neurodiversity, inclusive and agile leadership, cultural knowledge, and the multi-generational workplace, among other topics. She also provides inclusive leadership coaching. 
John R. T. Wilson III, called JT, is a diverse lead trial attorney offering a range of legal services for public and private corporations of various sizes, including Fortune 500 and global companies. JT helps his clients manage costs and minimize financial exposure in both single and multi-plaintiff class and collective actions, Title VII, ADA, ADEA, Federal Employers Liability Act, Joint Employer, OSHA, Retaliation, Wage and Hour, Whistleblower, and Workers' Misclassification Cases at Trial in Federal and State Courts across the country. He also advances his client's interest in matters pending before various federal, state, and local administrative um, agencies. So welcome to both Tammy and JT to today's workplace. Good morning. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you. Um, I, let's get this uh, conversation started. Tammy, you and JT have actually come up with a trademark name for a very unique diversity program that you've created. And I'd like you to tell us about the name of the program you've created and how you developed developed its name, as well as the program, and, and what is it about your background that gives you a unique perspective on this work? Sure. Um, the name of the program is Unmasked, and Unmasked basically looks at the concept of belonging through the lens or perspective of Black American millennials. Um, the, the title itself, Unmasked, uh, is in reference to a poem by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Uh, and it basically asserts that in reference to African-Americans that we wear a mask that grins and lies, it shades our cheeks, it hides our eyes. And he goes on to say, why would we let individuals see us otherwise? Only let them see us while we wear the mask. And so in the work that I do, uh, where there is tremendous focus on creating collaborative cultures, cultures of belonging, cultures of inclusion. Uh, there is tremendous effort to really understand what belongingness means, right? And so at a rudimentary level, it is difficult to have belongingness if you don't have a pure sense of the various social identities that are being engrafted in, into the concept. And so this program takes on an educational component to raise awareness about the Black American millennial experience. In doing so, uh, it requires a discussion about their generational peers, commonalities and differences, as well as Black elders, right? So it sort of creates that intersection for age and race uh, that is reflective of the Black American millennial experience. Of the companies that, that you've provided this training to, what have they, you know, what, what have been the response? Um, sure, I think it's been uh, well-received, incredibly eye-opening, uh, which is very interesting to me, the, the fact that there is a delineation between Black American millennials, those individuals born after 1986, um, and older 
populations of Blacks in the workplace. Uh, and so I think what I've discovered in the course of presenting this training and consulting and doing assessments that are relative to it is that a lot of organizations presume uh, implicitly, I'll say, that there is just a monolithic Black identity without understanding the uniqueness, right? Uh, and while certainly everyone has their own unique lived experience, in addition to their unique lived experiences, there are social groupings and that having the appreciation that Black American millennials and their, their lived experience and coming of age, the era in which they were born and have grown up is distinctive from older Blacks in the workplace. And so creating a culture of inclusion that is predicated on their current experiences with Black employees or their historical experience may not actually bring into the fold or create a sense of belongingness for Black American millennials, which could potentially result uh, certainly in concerns with complaints about disparate treatment, uh, as well as higher attrition rates. And it's during a time period where there is significant value that is placed on uh, what I refer to as diversity innovation. Having people of different lived experiences in the workplace so that their contributions can add value to the overall performance of an organization. And so the goal here is to create this culture of belonging that truly appreciates differences within racial groups. Mm -hmm. Now, after George Floyd's murder, um, many corporations made um, bold statements. It was interesting that during that period, I would read statements and I could kind of tell the ones that felt like they were authentic and um, the ones that felt as if they had been written by the communications department and didn't feel very authentic as at all. You know, one of the attributes of the authentic statements was a recognition of, we're not quite sure how it is that we move forward from here. Um, and so in reality, we know that there has been very little progress made in companies when it comes to hiring and retaining um, people of color. Billions of dollars have been spent over decades on training and very little progress. So JT, in your view, why have these past efforts been unsuccessful and why is Unmask different? Yeah, Barbara, you raise a very, um, a very key point and I, I think it's a very complex um, analysis to conduct, but there are a few things that we can look at that really kind of highlight, highlight the, the issues. One, I think, is um, you look at it from the perspective of what is the end goal? Uh, I think one thing we've, we've seen in terms of diversity initiatives over the past 30 plus years uh, is that numerically there has been some change, right? There are more um, Black representation numerically in spaces than were 30 years ago, right? So we, we understand that. But when you look at the substantive change, so let's narrow it down. Let's look in the legal profession. We know in the legal profession, less than 
of um, partners in large firms and firms. This is a 2019 number. Less than 2% are Black. And when you drill down even further and look at Black female, those who identify as Black female, it's less than 1%, right? And so we see that even after 30 years of focused efforts in this space, we still see that there's very slight change substantively in certain spaces. You might ask yourself the question, what's the reason for that? Could it be accountability? It could be. Uh, could it be that um, corporations, entities were merely going through a process and going through the motions, if you will? That's possible. It could also be that the focus was too narrow. So focusing on increasing the numbers numerically, but missing the mark, as Tammy mentioned, really looking to create a sense of belonging. Because you can bring a person into an environment, but if that environment does not welcome that person's presence, their contributions, the, their uniqueness, right? Then the individual is not likely to stay in that environment. And so when you start talking about what we're looking at through the lens of the Black American millennial, we focus on belonging. Because there is a distinction between uh, someone who makes an adjustment to make the environment feel comfortable with their presence because the environment doesn't actually appreciate their uniqueness, right? In the sense of welcoming that uniqueness. Uh, it's, it's frequently the people are there in the space, but they're not within the inner circle, right? And so there, there's a disconnect between the person's presence and their sense of belonging as feeling a part of. And so we believe that that may very well be the reason that we haven't seen the types of change that corporations have expressed that they want to see in this space, right? Um, and, and as you, you, you take that a step further, why is Unmask different? Because I think Unmask really peels back the layer and says, okay, you've done a great job of diversity, but now let's really focus on creating an inclusive environment because an inclusive environment is welcoming and it focuses on belonging. And when we look at the unique experience that Black American millennials have, that sense of belonging, creating a workplace that will allow them to truly feel a part of uh, the integral workings of their environment, we believe that that is uh, the basis and to bring about really a transformative um, opportunity for growth uh, within this space. So Tammy, JT brought up two really important concepts and words that we hear uh, quite often uh, in talking about this, this topic, but I'm not sure uh, that everyone is clear on the differences. Can you talk to us about a concept that you focus on in Unmasked, uh, the concept of belonging, as JT mentioned, and inclusion. Can you discuss the differences between the two? Sure. Um, I'll go one step back. So there's a natural human need, right, to, to be an individual, to be our authentic self, and to also belong, to be a part of. And related to that is a tendency to gravitate towards our own affinities things that are like us. We like commonality. We like safety. Belongingness refers just generically 
to uh, a sense of security, a sense of support. So it's a supportive and secure community. It's an accepting community. Distinguished from inclusivity, right? because inclusivity, it offers support, security, but acceptance as one's authentic self. So it has high belonging and it has a high value on uniqueness. So those organizations that operate contemporaneously on both of those levels are indicative of being inclusive. Alternatively, there are a lot of organizations, uh, at least this is part of my premise, that have cultures of belonging, but they have achieved the culture of belonging through assimilation, not through inclusivity. Mm. And so what happens in an environment that is achieving belonging through assimilation, individuals will modify their behaviors to fit the dominant culture's preferred approach. And we refer to that often as the facade of conformity, right? So they've conformed to dominant culture uh, in theory for purposes of perception. In essence, however, internally, there is this tension because their values, their inherent values are distinctive. So they're at the table, there are people listening, but it's not their voice. They're part of the echo chamber. So in essence, they're telling people what they wish to hear. And so part of the concern with that, uh, it, it's a coping strategy, it's a survival technique, right? And so, but the concern is that a lot of, if there's a facade of conformity for a lot of employers, they may actually have a facade of belongingness in their culture, a facade of inclusivity, because they're, they're basing the sense of belongingness on individuals who don't feel as though the environment is trusting enough. There's a lack of psychological safety that they can tell in decision makers, leaders, that they can speak truth to power without retribution. And that is the primary distinction in a purely inclusive culture. There is an openness to communication. People want to be collaborative. They want to understand the differences. Not only do they wish to understand them and appreciate them, but they wish to maximize those differences. They recognize that there are powerful benefits derived from the difference. And so creating that cookie cutter culture where everybody looks and sounds alike is of no value in the 21st century. And that's part of what we discuss with employers is how to really advance on this issue and to create that sense of psychological safety and comfort where we normalize discussions about differences, discussions about race, as opposed to seeing them as challenging or opposed to ignoring them and creating the colorblind cultures that inevitably uh, result in having uh, a facade of conformity, right? Or code switching. Tammy, can you get us some examples of how um, a black millennial 
may experience this lack of safety in the workplace? And why not use law firms um, in terms of concrete examples of situations where um, there may be inclusion, but not the sense of belonging, which is what you're looking for? Yeah, I think that uh, one of the most frequently experienced examples for Black American millennials in the legal profession, especially in law firm settings, is probably with work allocation. And all lawyers went to law school. Uh, as we all know, first year courses are exactly the same. We're studying the same cases. Uh, they've sat for the bar. They've passed the bar. You would anticipate when you enter the legal profession that there is a level playing field because of those established standards, only to recognize that oftentimes race becomes even more pronounced in that setting. And so because there is a, a comfort with affinity and what I call the, the competence bias, right? And that oftentimes black American millennial associates may be overlooked for assignments, may be overlooked for sophisticated work, opportunity for development, opportunity for exposure to clients, primarily because the partner is more comfortable with someone who is on, in their own affinity. And as what a result it? of that, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was just going to say what is um, somewhat mind-boggling to me and what is amazing to me goes back to something that Barbara uh, said uh, when she said, you know, we've been doing these things for years and yet there's still no impact. As a young associate, I entered a law firm 29 years ago and was struggling with that exact same issue. So the fact that we are now this many years still struggling with it, but having all these organizations and all this conversation about the need for diversity and people taking action and what, but not able to move the needle that's um, pretty disheartening, really. It, it, well, it is that, disheartening. Go ahead, JT. Yeah, I was going to say, but that's one of the one of the aspects, Belinda, to your point, that Unmasked really focuses on. So we really focus on a comprehensive approach. Uh, we believe that you, you may have there. There are generally uh, segments that you you look at, and you look at people's individual agency, right? So how are individuals moving and operating in the space? If the environment, though, that we've talked about, that Tammy mentioned, if the environment isn't conducive to creating that sense of belonging, right? You could have individual actors that will act, but the environment ultimately will still predominate and still perpetuate the same, um, the same result. I, I use the example this way: um, if if you know Thanksgiving is coming up, and for those who celebrate the holiday. You know, my grandmother uh, would, would frequently make this this sweet potato pie that everyone goes crazy over, right? The family loves the pie. Um, but one pie wouldn't work for the entire family. I come from a large family, right? <laughs> and, and so you want to create more of those pies. Well, you just change some of the values, but you don't change those variables, right? This, the recipe is still the same. And so you're not going to all of a sudden create an apple pie, you're going to keep creating sweet potato pies, right? Because the recipe hasn't changed. And that's what we're seeing in this space. When we look at Unmasked, Unmasked, uh, we took some uh, concepts 
that we've seen work really well in other sections. And we looked at the end product. What is the end product? A sense of belonging for this group. And we look at it through the lens of the Black American millennial. And we reverse engineered from that perspective as, as opposed to saying, this is who we are. We want to make people comfortable in this space, right? Well, now you're looking at it from a different perspective, right? It's important to evaluate it from the end user. What is ultimately the goal? You want this segment to feel like they belong in this group. Well, you need to understand what this segment needs to belong, right? And you work your way back from that as opposed to saying, this is who we want to be. Let's create this program of who we want to be and then invite people to the party. It's a different way of thinking. No, really um, excellent, excellent points. Um, one of the things about um, Unmask is that it does talk about these multi-generational um, perspectives. Um, and Tammy, tell us more about how employees of color perceive treatment in the workplace, um, distinct distinctions among um, generationals, recognizing how a baby boomer's perception is going to be different than millennials. So um, tell us about these generational differences. Sure, um, so to, to get to the, the micro level in the workplace, I'll start with the macro. So what has changed in society? Uh, we know that for millennials, they likely grew up in environments where it was not socially polite or acceptable uh, to engage in expressions of overt racist rhetoric uh, up until recently. And as a result of that, I think they have been exposed to more forms of implicit bias or uh, I'll even say masked bias. So individuals who may have had overt intentional racist beliefs, but masked them, they were not openly expressed. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're part of the most diverse generation in our nation's history. It's also the largest generation in our nation's history. Uh, as a result of that, they've had a lot of social interactions, relatively speaking or comparatively speaking, uh, than past generations to individuals of different racial and ethnic groups. So they've grown up with a sense of comfort uh, around whites and other ethnic minorities. Uh, similarly, whites have grown up with a greater sense of comfort around blacks, right? And so the, the, the definition of blackness is not something we're learning for the first time in the workplace. They've had quote unquote friends uh, that they have come of age with in, in that same space. Similarly for the I generation, uh, those born after 1989 within, within the Leonardo subset, they also came of age during the time when the, the president of the United States was African-American, President Obama. And I talk a lot about just the, the neuroscience behind that and the encoding on the neural pathways uh, the, the quote unquote normalization of blackness when the leader of the free world is a, a black person. Um, it changes the narrative that had been written throughout history about 
what it meant to be black in the abilities of blacks. And that not only affected black American millennials and empowered them and inspired them and, and gave them aspiration uh, to succeed. It also had similar impressions on whites in the United States and on a global stage. And so I think when you take that macro experience, right, the, that generational experience, those events, and then you, you shift into the workplace, millennials are entering the workplace differently than perhaps prior generations of African-Americans. They have a greater expectation for fairness, greater expectation for equality. They are far more receptive or observant of differences, even microaggressions. Um, they know who's part of what lunch click, right? Uh, and whether they, they have a sense of belonging at that social level or not. In many ways, it's more than likely that, that older Blacks were aware of the same, but were less inclined to express concern about these actual or perceived differences. Black American millennials are as um, vocal, as entitled, as empowered as their white millennial counterparts to raise concerns. And that is the distinction that I think workplaces have to brace for. If they're accustomed to the perception that there are no concerns uh, because Blacks are wearing this mask and giving them the impression that everything is acceptable, now shifting into a workplace culture where these concerns are being raised for purpose of course correction, right? That they wanna belong because they've had a sense of belonging. And so they're experiencing the workplace and perhaps discovering that that belongingness has not been at the same level perhaps it is it has been in externally. And that's a, a, a significant part of our work. And I think JT best described it as helping employers to understand predicated on actual outcomes, not the needs of a, a diversity template that is applied universally, but looking at what are the needs of the various social groups within your organization. Mm. And how do you create that level of belongingness? That's a, a very yeah. unique microcosm or a different sort of spectrum. Yeah, that's that's very, very interesting. And you're right, a very unique um, approach that seems like it's going to yield uh, more impactful outcomes. Um, JT, you're a a jury trial lawyer with a very active practice when it comes to defending companies across the country in discrimination cases. Um, so what impact are you seeing and do you envision as far as the discrimination claims, both in terms of the number of claims and the types of claims? Yeah, uh, Belinda, you raise a very, a very interesting question and this is gonna dovetail um, much of which Tammy just spoke so eloquently about. Um, taking it from the macro level, because of not only the diverse nature of the demonstrations, but let's also look at the scope and the breadth 
of those demonstrations. At one point in the U.S., you had 40 cities, peaceful protests simultaneously underway in 40 domestic cities across the U.S. That did not even take into account the other cities abroad. You had movements in Sydney, you had movements in Europe and Paris and in England and, and in these different areas uh, of the country. And so I should say of the world, because of the breadth of that, the movement, we've noticed that there's been a new nomenclature that has developed that's moved from the realm of academia into the realm of common everyday knowledge. Terms like institutional structural racism, Terms like anti-racism, you know, these terms have now moved into the mainstream. That means you have a more educated populace, right? So now you have an individual who's heard this term institutional racism encounters something within his, her, or anyone who identifies differently, the workplace that they're in. And now because of this increased sense of awareness, has, and, and also, uh, Barbara, dovetailing to what you said, these companies have issued public statements, right? So they've put it out there that this is the type of environment that they are. They are inclusive environments. They're supporting um, the Black Lives Matter movement, or they support equality, support equity. So that means this position now has the public appearance of being validated. So you validate my authenticity, you validate my need for belonging. So when I encounter a perceived situation that declines me, what I perceive to be my right, right? I'm entitled to belonging, I'm entitled to equity, I'm entitled to fairness. And if I don't feel like I receive that fairness, I'm going to say something. What we have seen, what we reasonably expect, and this is not a novel concept. This isn't the first time something like this has occurred. Let's think back to the Me Too movement. Just a few years ago, we saw those of us who practice in this space an uptick numerically in the sexual discrimination, sexual harassment type claims. We saw an uptick in that area with the EEOC and also internally within corporations, right? We reasonably anticipate because of the shifting landscape, there was a time before where the perception of these claims being brought would fall on deaf ears. But now there's an audience to receive these complaints, right? There's a community being that there is, an, there is a group that says we're in this together and this is, you know, we bond together. So there's a community for it, a sense of validation. But then there's also an audience. Now there's an ear that wants to hear these complaints. Just like we saw it in the Me Too movement, we reasonably anticipate and have seen it already in this space as well. Um, not to throw anyone under the bus, but McDonald's Corporation was hit with a class action lawsuit earlier this year by Black owner operators saying that they felt discriminated against. So we reasonably anticipate there to be numerically more claims in this space, but also the kind of claims. I think you're going to see um, the same types of claims you would normally see, but the vehicle to get there is now going to be this space of discrimination against black and brown people, BIPOC peoples. For example, you're gonna see things like personal injury, federal employer liability claims, but the vehicle is because black employees were treated differently. They were not trained the same way. They were not given the same levels of um, 
protect personal protective equipment to deal with COVID, right? Or they weren't provided the same um, training or the same uh, safety measures that their non-Black employees were provided and therefore it led to this underlying issue. So those are the type of claims that we see. It's going to be through this lens of perceived inequity and perceived discrimination that you're gonna have some of these claims. And so it's really gonna be colored and tailored to say this end result occurred because I'm treated differently, right? It's the disparate treatment that's gonna lead to these other forms of breach of contract, personal injury, violation of the Federal Employers Liability Act, right? These other Title VII claims, the vehicle is really gonna be this concept of disparate treatment or inequity, racial inequity. And I, I think you raise a good point in terms of that lens changing uh, and particularly for employers uh, because they had always measured the risk around, you know, a discrimination lawsuit or a class action, and, you know, have always um, known there's a certain amount of reputational and financial damage that you can incur uh, with those types of claims. But what I think they need to recognize is that uh, particularly on the reputational side, that that has expanded tremendously in the same way that they saw a wider group of, of, of people recognize uh, the injustice that we saw in our, in our uh, criminal justice system. That same group has now really is paying attention and speaking out and on behalf of that's, you know, those levels of injustice, even in the workplace. And I think um, so employers are definitely going to, when they're measuring risk and when they're thinking about risk and, and thinking about the investment that they would put on the proactive side in preventing themselves from getting in that situation that know that the stakes have, have risen. Belinda, I mean, you're, you're right on it. I'm going to speak, I'm going to say it colloquially, cancel culture is real right? That's what you're talking about. You're talking about cancel culture. And that's the, that's the lens through which Tammy and I actually created this, this, this training, right? Because we're more preventative strategies. Tammy is a guru in this space. My experience comes through that lens of seeing how these issues play out in front of a jury, right? And so extrapolating and saying, hey, if you don't want to get here, meaning in front of a jury in a lawsuit, it's better to be proactive in this space. Let's read the temperature and see how things have changed. Going back to Tammy's, uh, the, the concept of Tammy elevator, I should say the factor that Tammy elevated for our consideration, which is this, the, the fact that the millennial generation and population is more diverse ethnically than any of its prior generations, any of its predecessors, right? It's no, that, that creates this exchange of cultures. Right. No longer is it I'm playing with the kid down the street who looks differently than I do. The change now and the shift now is there are people in my family that look differently than I do. And I'm accustomed to experiencing their culture and they're accustomed to experiencing my culture. So there's actually a cultural exchange. So now you're getting into matters of heart that are no longer just matters of head. This is a person that I know and I love who looks differently. How dare this environment that I'm in treat an individual that I love 
differently. I can readily identify with that culture, with that exchange, and therefore there's an increased sensitivity and awareness about it. And so when you start to see those perceptions, you see it play out in the space. Before we leave the area of litigation, JT, I wanted to have you address a concern that I hear from um, some employers, and that has to do with preference with respect to race and a concern that by making making very bold pronouncements, for example, we're gonna have 10% of our leadership team um, be African-American in the next three years, that there is the risk of um, reverse discrimination claims because it, you know, our discrimination laws are premised on the concept of equal treatment generally and not preferential treatment. So what's your, what's your response to that? Well, obviously, Bobby, uh, Barbara, that's going to require a very specific um, analysis depending on the entity. But let's, let's speak more broadly uh, mm-hmm. speaking. When you look at uh, the general makeup of many of these corporations. Um, and, and, and because of this increased awareness, there have been, right? The pronouncements that were made saying we stand with and this is what we believe in. There was a group and have been groups that have gone to say, okay, really? You say you, be- you, you stand for this. Well, let's look and see how your numbers stack up in this space, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's when you hear the, the, the terminology start speaking towards racial equity. Because what we see is within the lower ranks, so your entry-level positions are very diverse. But as we start to get up the levels of management and get to the board positions, um, I think it was the it was Forbes magazine that ran uh, an article that showed the general racially or, or ethnic makeup of the board. So I think it was like a top 10, top 20 companies. And the vast majority of them were, if not exclusively, predominantly all majority, white male, right? That was the reality. And so we see that there is a gap, right? There might be a gap. Um, And so it's creating these strategic plans that does not just promote for the base of color or for the base of race, but actually create an environment that would allow for the natural retention and natural advancement of that diverse talent that's already present, right? And so it's creating this sense of, as Tammy mentioned, belonging so that individuals who might see and think and live different experiences might be able to bring forth and bring to bear their full gifts and and the full um, cadre of their skills and talents into this environment, which may have historically not been set up to receive that and therefore not set up to reward or advance that particular skill set. You know, Tammy, I see employers struggling to figure out um, solutions. They want to change the culture of the workplace, but they don't know exactly how to go about doing it. What are some of the strategies that you are recommending um, as far as changing the culture and creating this culture of belonging, especially as it applies to millennials? Sure. Um, 
but probably the, the baseline approach is to begin with a, a cultural assessment, uh, but not your standardized cultural assessment, uh, more in the space of a, a racial equity assessment. The assessment in and of itself uh, is very fairly generalized. I think here the goal is to learn from the, the populations um, that you're looking to create inclusivity for. So that means having listening circles with Black American millennials. So it's beyond just the questionnaire or the paper survey, right? Uh, gathering data. It's having focus groups uh, so that, that you understand their experience within a specific organization because again, each organization has its own unique DNA uh, generally and in the space of diversity, equity, and inclusion. It also means gathering data from a variety of different sources and methods, uh, sources including employment records uh, from across the entire employee life cycle, uh, social media, uh, what does their website look like? Uh, all those things are very revealing. Uh, and even from customer experiences within organizations who directly serve uh, customers and consumers. And oftentimes that data gets analyzed. I, I don't analyze data, I interrogate the data, right? Uh, because that's the only way you're going to really uh, dig deep enough to identify where there are potential gaps and where those opportunities are to begin to create inclusivity for all employees. Uh, and that doesn't tend to be a, an issue with majority employees. It tends to be an issue with those individuals that are perceived as being marginalized or who have been historically underrepresented. And so if you want to advance in that space, you have to talk to those individuals. It can no longer be that their voice is the voice of those that came before them or academics or just a general assessment of the temperature or the environment. It, it means a more direct path. It means gathering that data from the impacted individuals. Wow, this has been just like receiving a treasure trove of information um, that um, you guys have, have hit the nail on the head in delivering understanding and learning about diversity, equity, and inclusion in a very forward-leaning way, a very 21st and beyond century way. And so now we'd like to hear your last word for from each of you. What are three pieces of sound advice you'd like to give any employers that are revisiting their diversity, equity, and inclusion um, approach and programming in a way that will address the pressing issues of today's workplace. Who wants to go first? I'll, I'll defer to Tammy first and I'll wrap it up. Sure. Um, first and foremost, the word intentionality is referenced a lot. Um, I think we have to proceed with the same level of intentionality that employers have with respect to re-entry during the health pandemic. If you come into organizations, you see postings, uh, their daily reminders. It's assessed on a daily basis. Uh, you can't get to intentionality 
without making it part of the everyday culture. Uh, I think it's important for organizations uh, to, to have a level of intolerance for management that have fixed mindsets, especially in that middle management sphere, right? Because it's one thing when leaders understand it, but leaders are not directly involved in the day-to-day -day management of individuals. Uh, and so it's critically important to focus on that middle management, that they understand what inclusivity means and that they're measured on it and that they're accountable for it. And then ultimately is the, the recognition uh, that, that we are stronger and better together. Uh, that, that when we bring our uniqueness, it makes us more powerful. It doesn't dilute us, it doesn't weaken us. It makes us stronger. Thanks, Tammy. For me, I would, I'm, I'm going to just say simplicity, um, direction, discipline, determination. Direction, it's important to know where you're going. What is the end goal? I think it's important to identify what that end goal is. And, and in order to identify the end goal and to chart a course towards that goal, you have to be real about where you are. And so it's important to take that assessment that Tammy's talking about to honestly assess where you currently are identify where it is you would like to go. Then it's important to be disciplined, right? There is going to be some discomfort along the journey. But if uh, if success would e was easy, everyone would be successful, right? Because of the environment that employers are looking to create, to Tammy's point about, you know, taking the intentionality, because of where you're, you want to be, this environment that truly is an environment where people who come here, this culture is a culture of belonging. It's going to be, it's going to take some discipline to exact and implement the changes that need to be implemented in order to reach there and then be determined. We're, the, the largest room, a wise man once told me, the largest room in the world is a room for improvement. You're going to make mistakes. You're not going to necessarily get there on the first try. This is a process. It's a right. process. Uh, I, I, it's difficult to get through a conversation with me and not mention food because food is such a major part of my life. It's like cooking and preparing a dish. Each time you add a new ingredient, you have to balance the pot. You have to rebalance the pot to make sure you're continuing to head towards the goal that you are. And so understanding that it, it, it takes some determination, some determination in terms of balancing the pot, tweaking it here, tweaking it there to continue in the direction of where you want to go. Direction, discipline, determination. I think we'll see that environment that truly welcomes all peoples and we can live out the American creed, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty <laughs> and justice for all. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. We'd like to thank you, uh, Tammy and JT, for providing us with so much valuable information and helping us understand this very unique um, program that you've developed, um, Unmask, that is proving to be very effective in helping employers in today's workplace and address div diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. So thank you so much for being with us today. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you thank for having you us. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to Today's Workplace with Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. If you like what you heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future updates and episodes. For more information about today's episode, 
check out todaysworkplace.com. That's T-O-D-A-Y-S-W-O-R-K-P-L-A-C-E dot com.